Hello everybody, and welcome to podcast episode 3 of Lighting a Candle for Democracy, Australian Australian Political History from 1967 to 1977, the Whitlam years. Hi everybody. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people who are the traditional custodians of the Canberra region land on which much of this podcast is based. I I pay respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal nation, both past and present, and extend this respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast today. To recap, our episode last week was part one of the challenges that would face Harold Holt in 1967. This included the Voyager Disaster Second Inquiry and the VIP Flights Affair. In this episode, we're going to cover the feud between the two senior members of the Coalition Government, John McEwen, the leader of the Country Party, and Billy McMahon, the Treasurer and Deputy Leader of the, of the, of the Liberal Party. They will be the stars of this episode. The other stars of this episode include, of course, the Prime Minister Harold Holt, who we, who we have met before. But we'll also be introduced in this episode to the eccentric journalist Maxwell Newton. Also, the organisation's JETRO, which is, stands for the Japanese External Trade Organisation, and BIG, the Basic Industries Group. It's beginning to sound like a James Bond movie. <laughs> Okay, so let's get a start. The feud between the old school political warrior John Blackjack, McE- John Blackjack McEwen against the younger and ambitious Billy McMahon would be personal, professional and political. Added to this was a generational gap between the two men and their very different backgrounds. So let's talk about these politicians' backgrounds. Let's start with Billy McMahon. Of all the senior politicians I've encountered, he would have to be the most remarkable. Before we start start looking at his his background and where he started from, I just want to to give you some feedback from other politicians. Firstly, I found him a very strange man, totally unpredictable, fear upset and fearful, a a flighty character who was on the wing wing all the time. He was a purposeless leader, and he could not have led a trail of ants to a fallen ice cream. McMahon never regarded himself as 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 bound by what he said. He honestly could not separate truth from fiction. He just did not know when he was lying. That's the first quote. Ah, Number two. McMahon to me is a contemptible little squirt. He just looked forward to to tomorrow's leading article. That's all. McMahon, I think, is the most characterless man, characterless man, who's ever Prime Minister of Australia. A dreadful little man. Unquote. Third quote. 
I confess to a dislike of McMahon. The longer one is associated with him, the deeper the contempt for him grows, and I find it hard to allow him any merit. Disloyal, devious, dishonest, untrustworthy, petty, cowardly. All these adjectives have been weighed, have been weighed by me, and I could not in truth modify or reduce any one of them in its application to McMahon. I find him a contemptible creature, and this contempt and the adjectives I've chosen to apply to him sums up defects that in my estimation of other people cannot be balanced by better qualities. And finally, finally the last quote. And this was a question that was asked of a senior, very senior politician in 1972. And when he asked what his defining qualities were, he answered the question pretty quickly. His persistence. He stuck to his guns when he was very badly treated by Mr McKeown. And he won. He broke through. Some other people who would have had it, like Barwick, if he'd stayed, or Hasluck, if he'd stayed, they missed out. They didn't have the persistence. McMahon did. McMahon was an extraordinarily skillful, resourceful and tenacious politician. <laughs> okay. Well, you may be surprised to know that the first three quotes, which were extremely harsh, actually came from his Liberal Party compatriots. And the last one, well, surprisingly, which is quite a lot of praise came from Gough Whitlam, his Labour Party opponent. This was possibly the most genuine expression of praise that he would receive from any politician, public servant or journalist he would cross paths with. McMahon would be lampooned, ridiculed and have his character impugned like few other political leaders. The big question was, did he, reserve, did he deserve that relentless criticism. Well, let's be honest here, he, he would become legendary as a leaker of secrets, particularly from cabinet meetings. But he was also highly driven, ambitious and drove himself incessantly to succeed. William Daniel McMahon was born on 23 February 1908 in Sydney, New South Wales. Just three years after he, was born, after he was born, his mother, May Ellen, would contact, would, contract, would contract tuberculosis. The disease which affects lungs and is highly contagious was very difficult to treat in 20th century medicine. Because of the highly infectious nature of the disease, Billy's, Billy's father, whose name was also William Daniel, made the decision to split up Billy and his other three siblings and send them away send them away to various relatives. This moving between different homes would shape McMahon for the rest of his life. The absence of strong roots would give McMahon a restless nature that would drive his ambition, but yet also hamper his ability to easily work with others. In nineteen seventeen, his mother would pass away from her illness. McMahon's father 
Still in mourning after his wife's death and not feeling able to look after his children, made the decision to permanently send his children to live with other members of the family, both on his mother's, mother's and father's side. This was important for the young Billy McMahon, because he was to live with Samuel and Elsie Walder. Being brought up in the Walder home would be critical because of the financial security that allowed McMahon to get the best education that money could buy. But just as important was the father figure that Samuel Walder would be to the young McMahon. Walder was not only a single businessman, was was not only a businessman, but also an active member of the United Australia Party, the forerunner of the of the modern Liberal Party that we know today. Walder would drive the young McMahon in his studies and, and sports, and even convinced him to convert from Roman Catholicism to the Church of England. In 1932, McMahon, while still in his last year of law studies, would play a key part in extending the Packer family's holding hold, by in extending the Packer family's hold on its media holdings. The young Frank Packer would become a powerful ally of McMahon over the coming years. By 1939, on the eve of World War II, McMahon, at the age of 31, would become a partner of Allen, Allen and Hemsley, one of Sydney's most prestigious law firms. He would serve in the military at home during World War II after he was ruled out serving overseas due to some physical disabilities. After being discharged after the end of the war, McMahon would complete, would complete his economics degree. By this time, the new non-Labour Party, known as the Liberal Party, that would arise out of the ashes of the old Australian United Australia Party, was in its infancy. In 1949, the new, the new Liberal Party, along with its coalition partner, the Country Party, in an historical election which would, cut, would, would cast out the Labour government led by Ben Chifley, which had been in government for eight years. William Daniel McMahon would join the new government at this election as the new member for Lowe, which is based in Western Sydney. It would be the start of a 32-year career in politics for a remarkable and complex individual. John McEwen, on the other hand, better known as Blackjack, was one of the most ruthless but also respected politicians of his day. As an orphan, he would be a loner, yet a self-driven man who would transform the country party in Australia in the post-World War II era. It could be argued that under his leadership, the country party would be able to reach its peak of influence in decision-making. He was born on March 29, 1900, in Chiltern, Victoria. Unfortunately, his mother would pass away when he was just 18 months old, and his father also died when he was only seven. He would move in with his grandmother, in which McEwen himself would describe as frugal, as frugal, but happy enough. He would then have to leave school at the age of 13 to get a job and pay board to his grandmother. Then when he turned 18, he joined the Australian Army with the intention of serving in the First World War. But thankfully, but thankfully for McEwen, the war ended before he was shipped off to the killing fields of Western Europe. 
he would then face and have another turn of fortune when he found that he was eligible for the soldier settlers scheme. The scheme provided soldiers with land which, in which they, which they leased. It was a way of rewarding soldiers who had served their country, but it was also infamous for the numbers that failed. McMahon's farm, though, would be different. It not only survived, it would also become one of Victoria's showpiece properties. This was an incredible achievement for somebody who had very little farming experience and do, who did it largely on his own. He would readily admit that he did not be, that he did not mind being on his own. John McEwen had already joined the Country Party in 1919 and was on his way when he won a seat in Federal Parliament at the 1934 election. By 1937 he was in Cabinet, and in 1939 came close to winning the leadership of the Country Party, Country Party when he challenged the existing leader, Earl Page. After eight years in opposition, McEwen would return as Minister for Commerce and Agriculture in the, new, in the newly elected Coalition Government in 1949. He was a senior minister in the new government and would be in line to be the next leader of the country party when the current leader at the time, Arthur, or Artie Fadden, retired. John McEwen's country breeding would give him a sense of inferiority towards the Liberal Party. The city bred McMahon, on the other hand, was part of the post-1949 breed of Liberal politicians who were extremely ambitious. It was this ambition and McEwen's determination to protect the country party and his own position that led to the confrontation between the two men that would fracture the coalition. The two, the two politicians would first come into close professional contact in 1956. At this time, McEwen was still Minister for Commerce and Agriculture, and this was a natural ministry for a country party member to take. McEwen had already held the position for seven years since the government, Menzies government had come to power in 1949. But in 1956, the entire department was abolished and instead replaced by two new ones, the Department of Trade and also, surprisingly, a subordinate department of, prim of primary industries, or primary industry, I should say. McEwen would hold the Minister of Trade position for 15 years, the remainder of his life in Parliament. It gave McEwen a power base within the, co within the coalition government which he, would use to, which he would use to great effect. But even more importantly, Billy McMahon would be, would be appointed as a new Minister for Primary Industry. This would bring the two into professional contact for the first time. The appointment of McMahon to the primary industry portfolio was initially perceived as a way of exposing the ambitious McMahon. However, it proved to be a miscalculation. McMahon was certainly ambitious, but he also backed it up with a painstaking work ethic. To the surprise of McEwen and others, McMahon actually proved to be a great success in the portfolio. In fact, McMahon and McEwen at first would even have a good working relationship. McMahon would claim, claim, and I quote, I became a very firm friend of Mr McEwen. However, McMahon was not happy 
because despite a, despite a supposed promise from McEwen, McMahon would not end up being a member of Cabinet. One of the reasons provided to McMahon for his snub was that ironically, particularly with later events, that he was too close to McEwen. Well, we only have, we only have McMahon's word for this. It is also possible for the, one of the reasons for McMahon's exclusion was his, was his reputation, again, as a leaker of government secrets and somebody who was not, who was not afraid to highlight, highlight his own strengths, often at the detriment of his colleagues. Even early on in his political career, he would find his character and integrity being questioned. It makes it difficult to confirm his record of events. In March of 1968, McMahon would provide a written record to the new Prime Minister of his feud with John McEwen. I'll refer to this many times throughout this podcast, as it actually has McMahon providing his record of events in writing. We should place some weight on this, but it should also be tempered by McMahon's record of not always being completely honest with others. Bill McMahon may have been John McEwen's subordinate during this time, but as he developed confidence in primary industries, he began to challenge McEwen on issues which the country party held as sacred. It makes me ask the question as to why John McEwen would have even considered having a non-country party MP being the Minister of Primary Industry. There has been some speculation from Aaron Alan Reid, the legendary political journalist, also known as the Red Fox, that the city slicker McMahon had been set up to fail. McMahon, like others, may have wanted to put the ambitious and scheming McMahon in his place by taking him out of his comfort zone. We will never know the true reason, but it will be the starting point of an acrimonious relationship between the two men. McMahon would be in the primary industry's portfolio for a turbulent two years, which would seem, which would see McEwen accuse his subordinate of, and I quote, blacking him out of the media after McEwen negotiating a successful trade agreement, both with both men having a falling out, also both men having a falling out over McMahon's questioning of the dairy stabilisation scheme, one of McEwen's pet schemes, and in a bizarre twist, McEwen accusing McMahon of respecting a rumour that McEwen had cancer. McMahon wanted to fundamentally change the, the financial assistance measures that he was believed would be given to primary industries like dairy and wheat. McMahon had made a mistake of interfering, interfering in a preserve that traditionally belonged to the country party. In December 1958, after less than three years, McMahon would be out of primary industries and would be the new Minister for Labour and National Services. Uh, the country party in McEwen must have breathed a, a sigh of relief to have the feisty McMahon out of primary industries. He would actually be replaced by a country party MP. Even with McMahon's promotion though, McEwen was still far ahead of McMahon. As country party leader, McEwen would have real power because Menzies, learning from his past history, would not risk antagonising his partner in government. Eight years would pass 
and then a change that would intensify the feud. On January 26, 1966, Sir Robert Menzies, one of the founders of the Liberal Party and Prime Minister for 17 years, retired. As expected, Harold Holt, the Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party and Treasurer, was elected as a new leader. But in a shock result, McMahon would be elected as the new Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party. He had beaten the highly favoured Paul Hasluck, who had been expected to win. As Deputy Prime Minister, McMahon could pick whatever ministry he chose. He would unsurprisingly choose the Treasury portfolio. Billy McMahon would now occupy a position which would rival McEwen's authority in Cabinet. It was this period from 1966 to Holt's disappearance in December 1967 that would fuel the fires of the McMahon-McEwen battle and would ultimately lead to McEwen blocking the ascension of McMahon to the Prime Ministership. The 1966 election would also see a considerable increase in Liberal Party members in the House of Representatives. In this election, the Liberal Party would increase its strength by winning 9 out of the 12 seats that Labor lost in the landslide, while the Country Party won only an additional 2 seats. This meant that the Liberal Party could come, was coming within 2 seats of winning power in its own right. John McEwen had maintained an independent relationship with the Liberals during his tenure as leader of the Country Party. The Liberals' dependency on the Country Party to stay in government would have given McEwen a degree of, of assurance that the Country Party's interests would be looked after. But the 1966 election would increase McEwen's concerns about the future of the Liberal Party. His feud with McMahon grew as he perceived an alliance between Big, or the Basic Industries Group, Maxwell Newton, Billy McMahon, and any others that he that McEwen perceived were trying that who were trying to destroy the Country Party. McEwen would actually intimate this in an interview with Mr. Atchison, and I quote that the Liberal Party would like to see the Country Party just go away. Unquote. McEwen's actions during the succession crisis was more than just a strike against McMahon. It was fundamentally a message to the Liberal Party, indeed a reminder to the, of the importance of the Country Party. McEwen in his memoirs were given indication that it was not just about McMahon when he said McMahon, and I quote, was one of those people in the Liberal Party who thought they would be better off if there was no Country Party to contend with, unquote. The Department of Trade, which John McEwen led as Minister over the late 1960s, would battle for supremacy with the Department of Treasury to wield power and influence in the economic sphere. But there will be battlegrounds over tariffs and currency devaluation that will be fought out. The Department of Trade had become strongly aligned with the Country Party and its leader John McEwen. Whereas Treasury at this time was actually a combined unit which included taxing and spending functions. It was also true before a truly independent reserve bank would emerge. Treasury would defend its monopoly on economic advice that it provided to the government. 
But trade, the Department of Trade, would challenge this supremacy by its control over tariffs, subsidies, bounties, and, these po and the policies that kept it strong. Generally speaking, McEwen and his Trade Department would support policies such as higher tariffs and subsidies and other forms of assistance to Australian industry. Treasury, on the other hand, would oppose this, and I quote, creeping socialism and advocate free trade. It was inevitable that the two departments would clash, but the two ministers would be the driving force behind this conflict. The Battle of Tariffs had been conducted since Federation, but this was now about political power and who would wield it in the, who would wield it in the future. It was also more than just the ministers involved. It was also their public servants, journalists and newspapers who would be foot soldiers in the battles. On Treasury's side was the senior public servants, Sir Roland Wilson, Dick Randall and John Stone. These were legendary bureaucrats of their time. McMahon would also have Sir Frank Packer, who owned the Sydney Daily Telegraph, which employed, again, the legendary journalist Alan the Red Fox Reed, who would back McMahon. Finally, in McMahon's corner would be the journalist Maxwell Newton, the ex-public servant who had worked for Treasury and was the former editor of the Australian newspaper. In McEwen's corner was his departmental secretary, Sir Alan Westerman, and also the Australian newspaper, which was led by young Rupert Murdoch, owned by Ru young Rupert Murdoch, I should say. McEwen could also count his National Party MPs and even some Liberal Party MPs who resented McMahon. McEwen became convinced from the time that McMahon became treasurer in 1966 that with the support of like-minded individuals, including Maxwell Newton and the Basic Industries Group, also known as BIG, were conspiring to sabotage, Australia's, to sabotage Australia's trade policy and destroy the country party. McMahon's history of leaking cabinet dis discussions seemed to provide evidence of the Treasurer's attempts to bring about the country party and John McEwen's demise. Moreover, McMahon's alleged association with Big and the journalist Maxwell Newton drove McEwen's paranoia to a new level. McEwen's resentment of McMahon was driven by a number of accusations that McEwen made against McMahon, which reflected McEwen's belief that McMahon was attempting to damage the country party. The first accusation that was McMahon was involved in the Grazier's group, known as BIG, or the Basic Industries Group. BIG represented the rich graziers and wool industry, which at this time was still Australia's biggest export earner. The spokesman of BIG, through a well-organised um, well campaign, attacked the high cost structure that the wool industry had to operate under. BIG blamed this high cost structure for the high tariffs and level of protection that McEwen had spearheaded. Big would also advocate the rationalisation of industries which were inefficient. Big only comprised of only 12 members who were all graziers, but these members had considerable funds behind them which brought them power and influence. However, Big was only a small entity that was outside the main political spectrum 
that was hardly worth, worthy of McEwen's attention. Only one member, a Mr Charles Russell, would acknowledge his membership. Looking at Russell's past, it is no surprise that McEwen would have been triggered. Russell had been a member of the Country Party until 1951, when he was expelled from the party over differences of opinion on policy. Russell's wealth and the apparent secrecy of, the, of his group made, would make them a dangerous opponent for McEwen. It was a direct attack on McEwen from members of his own constituency, which he would have to stop. The secrecy of the organisation and its membership made it vulnerable to attack from, from made it vulnerable to attack, attack from McEwen, despite its obscurity. The importance of the organisation will be in the role it played in the deep, deep political divide between McEwen and McMahon. McEwen had made started to make statements in late 1967, condemning the activities of Big as I quote, faceless, rich and indeed very reckless in misrepresentation." Unquote. Minutes of the Country Party meeting were leaked in which the party's parliamentary members condemned the action of Big as being, and I quote, anti-Country Party activities of a senior minister of a senior New South Wales federal minister and his connections with Big, unquote. Well, Billy McMahon was the only person who would fit this criteria. Maxwell Newton was another individual on John McEwen's enemy list. Newton had started off his career in the Department of Treasury, but he then went on to be the editor of the Financial Review and Australian newspapers. He was an individual who was able to exert considerable influence through his contacts. Despite later events, though, Newton, as a mainstream journalist, would initially have a cordial relationship with McEwen and the government. But after leaving the Australian newspaper in May 1965, Newton became more outspoken and bitter. Newton, unchained from working for a major publisher, became more outspoken on his criticisms of government policy, particularly on tariffs. He would do this through a newsletter called Incentive. The newsletter was the equivalent of a social app today. It was not quite a newspaper, but Newton could use his newsletter to voice his opinions, particularly on industry protection. This would bring him into conflict with John McEwen, the Minister for Trade, who was a high proponent, who was a proponent of high tariffs and other forms of protection of Australian industry. McEwen and his department were able to win a number of battles inside his own government, particularly on motor vehicles and chemical tariffs. McEwen had been able to intimidate most of his op opponents, including Treasury, McMahon, Leslie Berry and a large portion of the Liberal Party. But Maxwell Newton could not be so easily pushed aside. Newton worked for himself, and so McEwen could not simply pay a visit to one, of the press to one of the press proprietors to air his grievances. However, after Newton appeared to be receiving information from cabinet discussions, McEwen unsurprisingly began to suspect that Maxwell Newton 
and Billy, and Billy McMahon, his arch-nemesis at Treasury, had professional connection. McMahon would only have been self-partly to blame for this. Newton, a member of the press gallery, would travel with McMahon in September 1967 to the meetings of the International Monetary Fund in Trinidad. This would highlight the link between McMahon and Newton. Rumours in the press gallery would, would appear alleging that Newton's travel expenses were being funded from Treasury. McMahon would deny the, the charges that his department had paid for Newton's travel and would provide some evidence towards this, but the links between the two could, not be, could no longer be denied. As a side note to this, Clyde Packer, Frank Packer's son and Kerry, Packer, Kerry Packer's brother would claim later that, that Newton had been arrested at this conference for allegedly stealing documents. It was alleged by Packer that McMahon had to intervene the McMahon had to intervene with the local authorities later on to have Newton released. McMahon's decision to align himself with Newton would bring him bring him into direct confrontation with McEwen. Others would argue also that he was a fringe member of the press gallery who was perceived to have shadowy links with organisations like Jetro, with, who, had, who represented Japanese trade interests in Australia. And he was accused, and Newton was accused, of being paid to promote their interests. Another of McEwen's, John McEwen's policy ideals, which would bring him into conflict with McMahon, was his ideal about buying back the farm. This concerned increasing the ability of Australian companies to be able to access funding to expand their operations, rather than having to sell equity to foreign industries. It would, in theory, decrease foreign investment, dominating Australia's economic interests. It fitted in well with McEwen's economic nationalism. His idea that he put forward to Cabinet was that of the Australian Industry Development Corporation, or better known as AIDC. It would be a government corporation that could raise funding overseas for investment in Australian companies and projects. It was a pet scheme of McEwen, which Billy McMahon and Treasury would vehemently oppose. McMahon would instead propose a scaled-down version of McEwen's vision, which would be better known as a Bankers Development Finance Corporation. This would instead marshal the trading banks and Reserve Bank to raise funding for Australian companies. When both proposals went to Cabinet, the decision was made to go with McMahon's proposal. McMahon had won this battle, but he had overreached. His campaign against McEwen's bank, as it became to be known, was out to destroy the concept for all time. McEwen's attempts to investigate the feasibility of the AIDC would see McMahon accuse his trade department of, and I quote, carrying improprieties to lengths that could, should, not, should not be tolerated, unquote. Treasury was defending its turf as the sole provider of economic advice to the government. Maxwell's, Maxwell Newton launched a, launched a stunning attack on, of the proposal in his newsletter, which would accuse McEwen of, and I quote, borrowing money overseas, and relending that money 
to McEwen's friends, unquote. This would be a humiliation to the country party leader the Blackjack would never forget. By late 1967, the battle between the two men was threatening to break the coalition government apart. How would the Prime Minister manage this? Oh, firstly, Harold Holt would meet with McEwen and McMahon on November 9, 1967 to attempt to resolve their differences. I think it would have been appropriate for the three to meet, with Holt as Prime Minister between, to mediate between the two men. But Harold Holt, as was his way, would invite a number of other interested parties. Some would call it a cast of thousands, which included Doug Anthony and Ian Sinclair from the Country Party, and Paul Hasluck, John Gorton and Ian Fairhall from the Liberals. What should have been a private meeting ended up as a committee, and as a surprise, the meeting would resolve absolutely nothing. At the meeting, McCune would accuse McMahon of interfering in the tariff matter and wanting the Deputy Prime Ministership for himself. McEwen made a detailed attack on McMahon, accusing him of undermining tariff policies that had been developed by the government. He accused Treasury of funding two trips overseas by Maxwell Newton, and Newton would be painted as a shadowy figure by John McEwen, with, with, with Newton being accused of being employed, employed by the Japanese External Trade Organisation, or DETRO, and being effectively a paid agent of a foreign government. According to John Gorton's account, McEwen would attack McMahon personally, saying, and I quote, you're just a liar, McMahon, and I've removed an expletive there, unquote. <laughs> McEwen used these specific instances to support his charge that McEwen, that McMahon was undermining him and the country party. Indeed, McEwen would not see McMahon one-on-one -on -one to discuss their differences because he could not trust McMahon not to spread, and I quote, spread a false account of what had passed between us, unquote. This meeting, again, solved nothing, and would actually further undermine Holt's leadership of the government. The second attempt to address the envelope, to address the problems between the two men, will come from a, din from a dinner at Government House on July 26, 1967, when the Governor-General, Lord Casey suggested to Holt that he should talk to McMahon himself, and, incredibly enough, Harold Holt agreed. It was clear, however, that Casey, as Governor-General, held McMahon largely responsible for the conflict between the two men. Holt's concurrence with the Governor-General on this intervention was, in my view, could be viewed as a bit of an ablet could have been viewed as an abdication of responsibility on the Prime Minister's part. As Prime Minister and leader of his party, Holt should have insisted on a mediated resolution with McEwen and McMahon as the basis of any, for any intervention by the Governor-General. To justify his intervention, Casey would state, and I quote, One of my responsibilities was to endeavour to ensure the stability of government in Australia Whatever political, whatever political parties were involved, and then, and I quote, I laid most of the controversy, laid most of the blame for the controversy on McMahon. According to Peter Howson, 
He, according to Peter Howson, the later meeting that would occur between between McMahon would see would take place on the eighth of December. The later meeting, the meeting that the meeting that would finally take place between McMahon and Casey, the Governor General, would finally take place six months later, on eighth of December, nineteen sixty-seven. Six months after the Governor-General had made the offer to talk to McMahon in person. There will be two known accounts of this meeting that will be given to Harold Holt, one from Casey and the other from McMahon. Harold Holt would take both letters with him on his fateful trip to Portsea later on. The Casey letter would be taken from Holt's briefcase after his disappearance, just less than just over a month later, but this in which would occur at Lord Casey's request. But then, sensationally, this letter would be reproduced in Alan Reed's book *The Power Struggle*, and Casey would actually admit that the reproduction of the letter was actually reasonably accurate. The McMahon account of this meeting would turn up in McMahon's file notes, which provided an account of, the, of his rift with McEwen. The Casey record of the meeting with McMahon would provide a vivid account of a government in a leadership vacuum, with the Governor-General berating the Deputy Leader of the Majority Party in Government, Billy McMahon, for his relationship with Maxwell Newton, who on the surface was a relatively minor player in the Canberra Press Gallery, owning a number of political newsletters. Casey would also accuse McMahon of, of attacking McEwen, with, which Casey equated with, and I quote, an attack on the whole country party, unquote. McMahon's denial of the allegations would be rebutted by Casey, that the improprieties were based on appearances of wrongdoing. Casey actually believed that the meeting had done some good, but the Governor-General's partisan, Governor partisan intervention would merely benefit McEwen in his ongoing feud with McMahon. It was clear that going forward, Casey as Governor-General would be more likely to favour McEwen rather than McMahon in any future constitutional decisions that the Governor-General would have to make. After what had been a really, really tough year for Harold Holt, there is a consensus of opinion that his mental health was suffering in what had been a very difficult year. Dealing with the McMahon-McEwen feud, the VIP aircraft affair, resurgence of doubts on the Voyager disaster guilty party, and a new and revitalised opposition leader had pushed Holt to breaking point. An interview with... Sir Kenneth Anderson, who was Minister for Customs in the government at the time, would give a fascinating insight into Harold Holt's mindset, mindset at the end of 1967. Anderson would claim at the time that Holt acted, and I quote, like a physically and mentally tired person, unquote. Anderson also recalled that a week before his disappearance that, and I quote, Holt was not with it, end quote, and also, quote, Detached and terribly tired, unquote. Peter Halston Peter would also partly confirm this. 
by saying, and I quote, by, the, by November, he was a very tired man, unquote. But Christmas was approaching. The Prime Minister would be heading to the Mornington Peninsula for the Christmas break. Holt's cabinet had met for the last time on Thursday, the 14th of December, 1967. And from there, Holt would be heading to his holiday home in Portsea, where he could hopefully relax. But then, on the Sunday morning, he would go for a swim at Cheviot Beach on Mornington, on Mornington Peninsula, which is close to his holiday home. He would never be seen alive again. Australian politics had been changed forever. Okay, so next week we will talk We'll talk about the events that would lead to the selection of the new Prime Minister that would ultimately have to replace Harold Holt. Now, on to our book report for this week. Um, firstly, um, the first one, the book I'd like to talk about is um, a book called Tiberius with a Telephone by Patrick Mullins. This was published in 2018 by Scribe Publishing. Wow! This is an incredible book. This book, followed, this book follows Billy McMahon's career and as a side story looks at the efforts by McMahon to have his memoirs published during the 80s. This book has been thoroughly researched and it is the first biography of McMahon that I've ever been able to find. I thoroughly recommend it. John Gray Gorton, an informal biography by Alan Tringrove, published in 1969, by Castle Australia Limited, is the next book I'd like to recommend. Trengrove was a journalist who would write this book shortly after Gorton became Prime Minister. Its timing of release makes us a good source of information for this period. It also provides a good background of Gorton's background and the troubles between McEwen and McMahon. Next, re next recommendation is actually for a website, and this is a Trove website. Um, um, which is NLA, um, N for November, L for Library, A for Alpha, which stands for the National Library of Australia, .gov, .gov, .au. This has the National Library of Australia's historical records, many of which are actually online. I found this particularly useful and quite fascinating for the interviews that were done with former political figures such as Don McEwen, Paul Haslack, Kenneth Anderson and many, many more. It's been such a delight for me to listen to these famous political figures from Australian political history speaking in their own words. Unbelievable. Fantastic. The next one is recordsearch.naa. That's recordsearch, one word, dot NAA. That's N for November, A for Alpha, A for Alpha, dot GOV, got dot, that's got dot gov, dot AU. This is the records from the National Archives of Australia, another great website. It has records, many that are digitised, from papers and records, from cabinet records, letters and documents from former politicians as well. Really exciting stuff. Love it. One thing I do need to do is to update my footnotes on the website from, website from my previous episodes. This was a, an oversight on my part, but I plan to have it done over the next week. Thank, for, thank you for listening. I will see you very, very shortly for my next episode, but please take care 
and stay safe. Thank you.